be here. And it's wonderful to be able to open up the Word of God and, and hear His words directly to us. And so today, as we come to the end of chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, I want to set us up by reading verses 19 and 20. If you want to stand in honor of God's Word, listen now to the Word of God. Here's what it says. Paul is writing to this church in Thessalonica, these people that he loves. Listen to what he says about them. He says, For what is our hope or joy, or crown of boasting before the Lord at his coming. Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. We'll stop right there and have a seat. Kind of a strange thing to say about someone. You are our glory and joy. What we're going to do today is we're going to talk about what that means, and we're going to end up looking at what it looks like in our life. To, to connect the dots between Paul writing this in the first century and us experiencing it in the 21st century. But, but I want to start by, uh, by telling you about something that's kind of bad news and, and kind of good news, kind of a, a story from this past week. See, most of you guys know, um, uh, we're a baseball family. We, we've been coaching for a while. And, and here's the sad news. Our baseball and softball seasons, they're coming to an end right? And so all these incredible illustrations about baseball and softball, I'm going to have to find new, new content, right? But uh, they're coming to an end. This next week is our last week, but, but uh, I want to tell you about something that happened on the softball field this week with, with uh, this last game we had. And, and the, see, the way it works, especially with the, the 12U softball, uh, is, you know, we're kind of competitive in the way we play. We, we want to win, but we begin at the very beginning of the season— teaching our girls that the win, the real win, is going to be that every single one of them, that they get better. And so we, we work on this, we talk about this all season long, and, uh, and one of the ways that we affirm this in their lives is at the end of most games, I hand out a game ball. Now I say most games because if we get taken behind the woodshed during a game, no one gets a game ball that game, right? But, but most games, our kids do well, and, and I hand out a game ball. And the game ball, it doesn't necessarily go to the best player on the field that day. Where the game ball goes is it goes to whichever player they, they demonstrated a marked improvement. They demonstrated that they, they had the win of getting better or doing something that they have yet to do before. And so as the season comes to a, it starts to slow down, most every girl has received a ball. This week, we had a game, and I texted the mom of, of one of our girls, and I said, hey, listen, this game, I'm going to play your daughter at this position multiple innings because I'm banking on her making a play. I'm banking on her making a play because these 11 and 12-year-olds, they're smart enough to know you can't just give them a game ball and say, hey, you ran the bases hard. Like T-ball, I do it all the time. Hey, bud, you ran the bases hard. Here's your game ball. They get it. But if you give it to a 12-year-old say, hey, you ran the bases hard, they're like, oh, Participation trophy, right? And so we were banking on this kid making a play. And you know what happened in the second inning? The ball got hit right to her. <laughs> I usually sit on a bucket right outside of the chain link fence, just kind of yelling at kids and coaching them. And in that moment, I think I leaned off the bucket. I had no air left in me as I am just watching intently what is going to happen. Is that ball going to go right between her legs? Please don't go right between her legs, right? Is, is this going to go from softball to soccer because she's going to kick it on accident? Please don't play soccer out there. What is going to happen? And she beautifully fielded 
the ball just how we have taught her. Got it right in her mitt. She took that ball and she turned to the first baseman to throw it. What's going to happen? Is she going to throw it low? Is she going to throw it to the side? Is she going to throw it over the first baseman's head? What's going to happen? And she, the ball leaves her hand. It's a little high, but the first baseman catches it. The umpire makes the out sign, and I did a triple backflip. <sighs> Maybe not that, right? I was thrilled. And you know what? The rest of the game, I, I had already known. That ball's going to that girl, right? The score for that game doesn't matter. We won. But the score for that game doesn't matter. At the end of the game, our girls run out to the outfield, and we gather for our team huddle, and I walk out there, and I got her name written on that ball. And I turn around, and I, she sees her name on that ball, and, and her smile is from ear to ear. I mean, this girl is glowing. Now, now listen, it's always fun to win the game. But, but one of the things that coaches, good coaches learn early, one of the things that was taught to me as a coach is the win for the game isn't always what the aim is. The win is the way you impact the lives of those kids. That's, that's how youth sports really are meant to work, right? Now, typically, if you impact their lives, you end up getting the wins. That's my experience. But, but the impact is their lives. The reason I tell you this story is because I think that's exactly what Paul is showing about himself in the end of, of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. When we get to these weird words where Paul is talking about a group of people and he's saying, hey, you are our hope, you're our joy, you're our glory, you're our crown of boasting. Those are weird things to say unless you begin to understand the big idea from this passage. And here's the big idea. Your greatest prize is the impact you make in the lives of other people. As we back up all the way to verse 17, what we're going to see is your greatest prize is the people that you impact for Christ. Now, let me, let me ask you. If you were to stand before the Lord right now, what would you acknowledge as the greatest prize in your life? If you, were to, if you were to stand before the Lord, if you were to come back right now, what would you look back at the course of your life or even the way you're living your life right now? Forget everything else. The way you're living your life right now, what would you look at and say, this, this is where my life really counts? What would you point to as, as something that's worthy in, in your life? And what would you look at as the barriers that are keeping you from making an eternal impact in other people's lives. You see, this passage, what it ends up doing, I think it identifies some of the major barriers that each of us sometimes we use as maybe real barriers or maybe excuses, things that keep us from making a, an impact in the lives of those that God has given us influence over. And so what I want to do is we recognize that your greatest prize is the impact you make in others' lives for Christ. I want us to let this passage reveal what are those barriers? And ultimately, what is the greatest barrier for you and I to make an impact in others' lives? So to do that, Open up with me. Look at verse 17. Let's, let's back up. We, we left off last week in verse 16. And, and today we're going to pick up again in verse 17. And here's the first barrier. The first barrier is what I would call a physical barrier or a physical distance. And here's what Paul shows us. He shows us that physical distance, it is not the greatest barrier to making an impact. 
Your distance physically between people, it is not the greatest barrier to you making an impact. Let me show you what I mean. Verses 17 and part of verse 18. Paul says, but since we were, we were torn away from you. Now let's just time out right there for a minute. Do you remember how Paul was torn away from those in Thessalonica? In Acts 17, we, we've, we've reviewed this a few times, but let me just refresh our memory. In Acts 17, Paul and Silas, they went to Thessalonica, and for three weeks, they reasoned and they explained and they proved from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. As they did that, people, men and women, Jews and Greeks, they were convinced, they were persuaded that Jesus is the Messiah, Because of this, Jewish leaders became jealous and they started a riot with all of the masses. They started a riot and they went to go find Paul and Silas so they could drag them out into the mob. When they couldn't find them, they attacked Jason, the house of Jason, someone who lived there in Thessalonica. And at the end of all of that, Paul and Silas had to escape. Paul says, we were torn from you. A few weeks ago, we talked about the way Paul had connected there in Thessalonica. He he describes the way he lived with them, the way he ministered with them. He said, we didn't just share with you the gospel. Remember what he says? He said, we shared our very lives. Before we even get much further, I want us to remember, Paul became, he, he became friends with these people. He became a brother to these people. These people became dear to him. And so I want you to hear when he says, we were torn away from you. I want you to remember how that happened. Here's what the text says. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavor the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. Here's what we see. Paul, from a distance, has has an earnest love for this church. Paul, even though he's separated by miles, he, he has a genuine affection for these people. This, this is a real love. This is not an imposter love. You know what I mean by imposter love? Imposter love is not in view. Imposter love, I think we've all experienced imposter love. It's like when you, when you talk to someone, you say, hey, I'm going through something really hard. Here's what's going on. And you're like, oh, 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 that's nice. I'll pray for you. And then they go and do something else. <laughs> imposter love is when you, when you text or you call a friend, you say, hey, I could really use a little bit of time. I, I really got, you know, I, I could use some prayer or, or your ear for a little while. And, and you don't hear back from them because they're, they're busy with whatever else is going on. Imposter love is that moment in the scripture that James describes when you, when you hear that someone has a need and you say, well, I, I hope you're warm and I hope you're fed. I'll pray for you. And then you just leave them in their need and you don't care for them at all. Listen, this is not the kind of love that Paul had. The, the, the language in this text You can't help but sense Paul's heart is spilling out into the page as he writes it. Look at some of the words that he uses here. Look at the phrase, more eagerly. He says, with great desire, describing the separation. We've already talked about this. He says, we were torn away. He says, I wanted to come. He says, again 
And again, even here, he says, I, Paul, again and again. Remember, Paul is writing this letter with, with Silas and with Timothy. But in this moment, he, he almost sets those two other guys aside. And he makes sure that those in Thessalonica know how dear they are to him. Listen, Christian love is not a fake love. Our affection for each other is not meant to be this, hey, good to see you on Sunday, I hope things are well, and then we don't think about each other at all for the rest of the week. This is, this is look, a heartfelt, genuine love for the church. This is what we see. And, and it doesn't matter how great the distance is. I think about the grandparents that I know who are separated by hundreds or thousands of miles from their grandkids. And these grandparents, it doesn't matter how far away they are, they pray every day for those grandkids. There is, there is no wavering in their love whatsoever. I think about those who go and serve in the military and the spouse is left behind. There is no wavering of love. There is a longing. There is a desire. There is a waiting. That's what Paul is revealing here in his great love for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not the imposter love. This is genuine. In fact, what Paul makes clear is, is that ideal love is face-to-face. He recognizes that their distance is not the barrier, that their distance isn't going to keep him from loving them, yet he makes it so clear. He says, my great desire is to see you face to face. I wonder if there's ever been a time in history where we have learned this lesson so experientially. I mean, think about this last year and a half. Think about how many stayed in their house and didn't see anyone for months, some for a year, some for even longer. I know some, because of certain health conditions, they're still only watching online. And, and we have not seen each other face-to-face in like 15 months. See, see, we've learned, thanks to the internet, we can make it work. Th- thank God for the ability to text someone, hey, Can't see you right now. Hope you're doing well. Thanks God for the ability to have the internet and and the fact that our services are are online and and those who can't come can still engage. But let's be very honest. Even when you engage online, it's nowhere near the same as face-to-face. It's nowhere near as meaningful. It's, It's not what Paul is looking for as he is desiring desperately to be face-to-face with these people he loves. I imagine he wanted to share a meal and laugh and joke, but you know, even more than that, when he wanted to come face to face, what was his purpose? He wanted to encourage them. He wanted to teach them. He wanted to serve them. He wanted to minister to him. This is why so much of value, we're trying to reopen it as much as we can. Why? Because ministry, the most effective ministry happens face to face. This is why we're so excited about later this month, June 21st through the 25th, we're going to have VBS in person. And you know what? We live in this, this, we got our churches in this area where there's all sorts of kids that come that they don't know Christ. Their, their families aren't connected with the church. And we have such an incredible opportunity to do what? To show love face to face. This is why in August, we're sending a group of maybe eight to 10 people to Southern Texas to do ministry among refugees. Why? So that they can be 
face to face. Because we know that there's no substitute for relationships that are built face to face. I want us to see that physical distance, it's not the greatest barrier. It can be. And it's not ideal. It's not, the, it's not ideal, yet physical distance does not stop us from, from this impact we can make in other people's lives. But what's the next barrier? Well, what, is, what does the end of verse 18 demonstrate is, is another barrier? The, the other barrier is simple. It's spiritual warfare. But Paul, even here, reminds us that spiritual warfare, it's not the greatest barrier to making an impact. He, he says that the, the devil works against us. Look at what he says here. He says, but Satan hindered us. Four simple words. I wish there was like 40 words here, honestly, because we don't know how Satan hindered Paul. We don't know if it was a, a physical hindrance, like, like he knew if he went there that he would be stoned. Maybe that's what it was. We don't know if there was a, just a straight spiritual warfare preventing him. We don't have those details, but what we know is that Paul attributed his inability to go back to Thessalonica and be with these people that he loved, he attributed it to, to Satan. And this reminds us that spiritual warfare is real. Satan is actively working against the, the, the things of God. Satan, he actively worked against Paul, and, and Satan actively works against you. When you're trying to have that great prize of making, a li- uh, making an impact in the lives of others for Christ, this reminds us of something very clear. Here's what it reminds us of, that life does not always happen the way you want. Anybody experience that? Life does not always happen the way you want. Listen, if, if it was up to Paul, let's just think clearly for a moment here. If it was up to Paul, if Paul wanted to go to Thessalonica, Paul would have gone to Thessalonica. If life worked the way Paul wanted it to work, guess what? Paul would not have written this letter. Paul just would have gone. And he would have been face to face. But, but life doesn't always work the way you want it to. We've experienced that in health, Right? Uh, who, who wants to list off the, the health ailments that you've experienced? Anybody? Uh, many of us could. We experience this in relationships. Who would like to come up here and list all of the difficulties in relationships they've had and th- things haven't worked out the way they want? Anyone want to come up and do that? All of us could. It, it doesn't even happen in terms of ministry. I could, I could stand up here for days and say, hey, we tried to do this, it didn't work. Hey, we thought this is what we were going to do and it didn't work. Ministry doesn't happen the way you want it to. That's just the reality. In fact, most of the time, the spiritual battle, the spiritual warfare, it, it's not physical. It, it might not even be relational. Most of this time, the spiritual warfare, it's, it's in our minds and what we believe. Paul uses the name of Satan here. That name, you know what it means? Accuser. You know what most spiritual warfare looks like? Is the accuser coming and, and spiritually whispering lies into your mind. You're a failure. You're not loved. You're not worthy. You have no purpose. You have no use. You shouldn't even try. You should just give up. Or maybe there are lies like this. You should just focus on yourself. You should do whatever you want. This is fine. You can do this. No, God didn't say this. And he comes and he accuses or he comes and he whispers. And all of this is one giant spiritual battle, one giant spiritual warfare. How do you respond to such warfare? Do you go home and put your head under your pillow and say, oh man, 
I'm scared. What should I do? I, I think we remember the truth that if you're in Christ, if you've trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, 1 John chapter 4 has something to say to you. Here's what it says, verse 4. It says, little children, you are from God and have overcome, overcome them, those who are opposed to the things of God. Listen to what the end of the verse says. It says, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Here's the question, who is in you? But the, the Holy Spirit of God that indwells, that lives inside every person who trusts in Christ. This Spirit of God lived inside of Paul even. Here's what that means. That means that giving up is not an option. Let me say that a little bit more clearly. That means that giving up is not an option. <laughs> and Paul... He says, we tried to come again and again. The idea here is Paul was going to continue to try. There was nothing that was going to stop him from, from giving. He, he wasn't going to give up. This means because Paul did not give up, this means you and I don't give up. We don't give up trying to do ministry. And more importantly, this means we don't stop trying to love. Even if life doesn't work out the way you want it to, even if the enemy is, seems to be hindering you, even if things are hard, Giving up, it's not an option. You get back up again, you try again, you push harder. This reminds me of what's kind of become my theme verse for this year. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. It says this, it says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is never in vain. Paul, Paul is giving us this image of our, our resurrected bodies and the heavenly moment where we get to be with God. And because of that, he says, while you're here on earth, in essence, he says, don't ever give up. He says, be steadfast. That means to endure. He says, be immovable. Plant your feet. Do the work you're called to do. Don't give up. And he says this, always abounding. He says, always going above and beyond in what God has called you to in making an impact in the lives of others. And then he says this, knowing that nothing we do in the Lord is in vain. He says, even if it's not working, even if you feel hindered, even if it's hard, even if life is not working the way you think it should or the way you want it to, he says, no matter what, if you're doing it in the name of the Lord, it's never in vain. It's never worthless. It's never empty. You know what this means? Simply put, this means that spiritual warfare, it is not the greatest barrier for you to make an impact in the lives of others. Greater is he who is in you. God has called you to. We, we've got great opportunity to, to make an impact in the lives of others, and, and there's not one of us that can say it's too hard. That's the point here. And so if, if physical distance is not the greatest barrier— and if spiritual warfare is not the greatest barrier, what is the greatest barrier? What, what is the major barrier in your life that keeps you from making an impact in the lives of others for Christ? Let, let's go a little bit further. Let me show you what I think this text reveals it is. Uh, he, here's what I would argue. I would argue that personal delight, that personal delight 
is the greatest barrier to making an impact. And here's why I argue it, because Paul reveals what his delight is. And as he reveals what his delight is, we get, we get a clear glimpse of the impact that he makes. Verses 19 through 20. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. And Paul here, he talks about a, a future tense and he talks about a present tense. And what he talks about in both of those situations is what he delights in. Here's what he says. He uses three words to describe the future that he expects. These three words are hope, joy, and then the crown of boasting. Here's what he says. He says people are our future hope, joy, and crown. In essence, Paul says, on that day when Jesus returns, and, and you know Jesus is coming back. This is a core teaching of the New Testament scripture. Jesus, one day, he will return. He will come before us. We, we will see him face to face. You see that? We will see him. And, and Paul says here, on that future day, Paul says, when I face Jesus, in that moment, my hope, my joy, and my crown of boasting, he says, it's not going to be my pedigree as a Jewish person and my heritage. It's not going to be all of the knowledge that I acquired as a Pharisee and as a teacher of the law. It's not going to be my self-righteousness that comes from religious observance. He says, on that day when I stand before Jesus, he says, you, people, and he describes them in three ways, are going to be my hope, my joy, and my crown. Hope. Hope is the expectation. Basically what he's saying is, when I stand before Jesus, I'm going to have the expectation that you, Thessalonians, because you've trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus, that you're going to be standing right there with me. He says joy. Joy here, the best definition for joy is an attitude of delight. Paul says, on that day, I'm going to have such an attitude of delight, not in, not, not in anything else but the people that I've impacted. I'm going to stand before Jesus with an attitude of delight. And then he, he says, our, my crown of boasting. This is kind of weird. Because Paul, when he usually talks about boasting, he says things like this. I'm going to boast in nothing but Jesus Christ crucified. And yet right here, he's boasting in something. He says, my crown of boasting is the people I've impacted. But this isn't, this isn't a crown like a king wears. It's this gold and bejeweled. This is actually, this is a crown like a laurel wreath that a runner wears. The runner who finishes the race wears. And they're, they're crowned with the laurel wreath as a prize. Paul says that his great prize is the people that he's impacted. And he's looking forward to standing before the Lord one day with that. that that's the future tense, but... But then he even talks about a present tense. His present tense, look at, look at verse 20 again. He says, is it not you? And, and then, he, then he switches over to right now. He says, right now, for you are our glory and joy. He, he says, you are our glory and joy. Glory is this idea of weight 
or substance. He says, you are the most weighty or substantial things in our life. And then again, right now, in this moment, the Thessalonians are his joy. It's where his attitude of delight comes from. This is, this is what Paul says is the, very mo- the most meaningful thing in his life. Now, we've got to be kind of careful here. Because as Paul talks about standing before the Lord and pointing at all the people that he's impacted, we, if we're not careful to read the Scripture in all of its context, we can get the wrong idea. You know what it almost sounds like? It, it almost sounds like Paul is saying, I am going to be approved by God for the work I've done in the lives of other people. But, but that's never what the Bible teaches. Paul here is not saying, I'm trying to please God so that he'll save me. Paul here is saying, I'm trying to please my Savior because of what he's done for me. Paul here is trying to say, I'm trying to please my Savior because of what he's done in the lives of other people. We, we have to keep this very clear. Paul is not trying to earn anything. Paul is just trying to live in response of what's been done for him. So, so let me bring this, let me bring this out of the 21st century, or out of the first century, and let me bring it right now to our world. Let me ask you, what is your hope? What is your joy? What is your crown? What is your glory? Let me ask it in a few different ways. What, what's your great accomplishment in life? You got something you're proud of? I mean, we just honored some graduates on the screen. They just accomplished something. I'm, I'm guessing some other people in this room at one point have graduated from high school or from college. And what a great accomplishment, right? Maybe your accomplishment is, you know, I've, uh, I, I've really, I've climbed the corporate ladder. I've achieved some things in my, in my work. And you know what? Other people, that they know me. They, they know how much I've achieved. They know how much I've done Maybe your accomplishment is, is you know what, I've got the, the highest score on Fortnite. <laughs> or, or, you know, I'm, I, I, whatever that might look like for you. What is, what's the most meaningful accomplishment in your life? Or how about this, what's your most valuable possession? Some of us, we, we love our house. We're so happy or so proud to have it. Or maybe it's, maybe it's your car. Maybe you've got just the perfect car and you're, you're so proud of it. And that's where your joy and your hope, that's what they're tied to. That's what they're built on. Or maybe it's some hobby that you're really good at. Like, you know, I won the softball championship one day, right? Like, what is, what is your greatest possession? I imagine if we peel back some of those layers, sooner or later we're going to start saying things like, it's not really my house or my stuff, or the things I've, I've accomplished. We're going to start saying things like, you know what most is most important to me? It's my family. It's my loved ones. Maybe even saying things like, it's my church. I mean, what is the church but an, but an ever-expanding family that cares for each other and that loves each other and that has this, this expectation that when we stand before the Lord, we're going to stand shoulder to shoulder with one another and saying, this is my hope and my joy and my glory and my crown. See, see this, brings it, this brings it home to us. Because if we would say that our, our family or our church or, or our friends or even, even expanding those, those spheres of influence to your school or your employment or your neighborhood, if we would say those are the most important things, let me ask you, do they know that? 
Paul makes it so clear to those in Thessalonica how dear they are to him. I read an article this week that, that more and more families at their family time, we've talked about this before, is, I don't have my phone on me, but their family time is all sitting in the same room and looking at their, their screen together. We might say that our family is our glory and our joy and our hope and our crown, but they, do they know it? Or let's expand it a little bit more. God has placed you exactly where you are for his purposes. Whether it's the place you work, the place you go to school, or the neighborhood you live in, you realize that God has placed you as a believer in Jesus to make an impact in every place you are. You might think, man, my neighbors, they're tough to get along with. You might think, my coworkers, you don't know these guys. You don't know these guys. You don't know how hard they are to be around. You go to school every day, high schoolers in the room, and you say, you, Mike, you don't know what it's like in high school. You don't know. You have no idea. Listen, God's placed you there. Just like God led Paul to Thessalonica, where the town got turned upside down, and yet in the middle of all of that, Paul, he, he won the great prize because he made an incredible impact in their lives. So, so just take this next moment. Let, let me ask you one final time. Are you living for, for the greatest of prizes? Are you living for the impact on people as your hope and as your joy, as your crown of boasting, and as your glory. Uh, take it back to that softball game. I, I could have placed that player, I could have placed them in the, the spot where they're least likely to get a ball, and you know if I did that, I would have been much more secure in feeling like we could win that game. I could do that every single game. And if I did that, we might win more games but we might have less impact on people. How about you? Are you living for that promotion? Are you living for that vacation? Are, are you living for that possession? Or are you living to make an impact on the lives of those that God has placed all around you? That's your great prize. Heavenly Father, God, we confess that sometimes we get we get the wrong ideas in our mind and we live for the wrong things. God, thank you that we don't have to keep living that way. Thank you that we, we come across passages of Scripture that show such an incredible, earnest love for others that we can't help but be inspired to live in the grace that you've given us. And so, Father, I pray for every person either watching online or in this room right now, I pray that you would give us just this, this wonderful passion to make every life around us, to make an impact on every life around us so that we have this great hope of standing before Christ one day, not trying to gain Christ's approval because that's already been given through his death and resurrection but instead to stand before Christ shoulder to shoulder with countless brothers and sisters knowing that we've loved them well, that we've made a real impact that will last for eternity. And, and Father, we pray for anyone here who's listening to this and, and they maybe are questioning whether they know if they can stand before you 
God, I pray for them in this moment. I, I pray that they would sense how loved they are. I pray that you would give them a clear mind that understands that Jesus, he died to pay the price for all of their sins and that he re was resurrected to, to give us brand new life. And I pray even right now you might rescue them into your kingdom. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this great day together. And we pray all of this in the great name of Jesus. Amen.